The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. We had a lot of the train companies reporting some earnings, so that means we have to check in with Lee Glasgow. He covers all the transportation uh, stuff for us, trains, trucks, ships, the whole thing, uh, air freight, does it all. Uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Ailey, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, export coal, that's the dirty stuff. We'll send that to Europe. The clean stuff out of the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, which I've been to, by the mm. way, that stays here. What are you hearing from the from the railroads uh, this quarter, Lee, so far? Yeah, so it's uh, been a, I wouldn't really call it a mixed bag. bag. We've had pretty much most of the rails beat expectations that have reported. Um, there is uh, one left that hasn't reported Canadian Pacific, but Norfolk Southern reported this morning and they missed, they missed by four cents. And you can see the stock is down around $6.50 right now. Uh, and really driving that weakness is not so much the miss, but it's their outlook. You know, they're expecting their margins to improve 100 and 150 basis points annually over the next three years. But consensus is at a 250 basis point improvement. So uh, consensus is pretty much in line where management uh, is expecting revenue to come in, which is around 3% growth, but it's really uh, on the cost side. And, you know, this this railroad has been dealing with a, a lot of additional costs. Uh, they were made headlines, unfortunately, earlier last year due to that uh, devastating uh, derailment in Ohio, uh, which uh, created a lot of chaos. Uh, the good news uh, for them is that, you know, they are really focused on improving their operations uh, with improving operations also because uh, comes improved service and safety. That's all been uh, doing quite well, but it also comes with higher costs. Uh, Norfolk Southern is trying to build a more resilient network. So next time, you know, something like this happens, and, and let's hopefully it never does, but, you know, uh, uh, it's an outdoor sport and, and things can, can <laughs> happen uh, when, when operating a railroad. Uh, that are kind of beyond their control. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it, it allows them to kind of bounce back. And the management did mention on the call this morning uh, that they got some kudos. Um, you know, I guess they wanted to highlight some good news that they had uh, from some of their customers because mm -hmm. a lot of rails faced some uh, serious weather in January uh, and they were able to snap back um, um, a lot sooner than maybe some of its peers because of this resiliency that they're building into their network. And again, that yeah. comes with higher costs. So, Lee... That's a Norfolk Southern story, which which in some ways had idiosyncratic uh, stuff going on. But you also had Union Pacific, you had CSX, and both of them had a cloudy outlook also for 2024. What's our macro read through for that? Yeah, so, you know, we, we've been in, in a freight recession uh, for quite some time. Um, you know, there has been no soft landing uh, for the freight markets. Um, you know, weakness kind of hit in 2022. Um, the good news is that, you know, we could have some growth uh, uh, this year in 2024, uh, but that growth is going to be probably pretty anemic. Uh, uh, it can be anywhere between low and uh, mid-single digits. Uh, so, so the the 
the outlook is mixed because it really depends on the commodity type. So the demand for automotives is still strong. Um, you know, intermodal. I was going to say, aren't we spending and buying lots of stuff? <laughs> we are buying buying lots of stuff, but a lot of that stuff is coming from warehouses versus coming from overseas. So um, you know, while inventory levels are, are getting normalized and the destocking cycle appears to be over, you know, it doesn't really seem that. Um, retailers or, or other businesses are looking to build inventories, just given the uncertainty that we're facing uh, from an economic standpoint. I mean, you know, we all know that, you know, uh, at least from consensus estimates that economic activity is going to be moderating this year versus last year. Um, and so, you know, again, with the mixed bag, you know, Paul mentioned export coal uh, earlier. You know, Export coal was a fantastic um, uh, business for a lot of these carriers uh, last year. Um, that is expected to cool. Um, utility coal is really going to depend on the weather and where uh, where, where stockpiles are. Uh, so that there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Um, and you know, you mentioned you know the, the idiosyncratic uh, story of Norfolk Southern. The thing about railroads is, you know, while there are some like macro overarching themes, you know, each railroad operates a different network with a different um, mix of businesses uh, and different benefits. And so, you know. It, it really becomes a rail on rail story versus, you know, uh, an industry story. But, you know, the one overarching theme that I would say is that volume is, is going to be better this year. Um, margins are probably going to be better uh, this year. Uh, and, um, you know, that should drive uh, earnings growth. You know, Alex, one of my first gigs back in the day was I covered the railroad and trucking industries. How in many my, jobs have you had? Oh, I've, I've been around. I've been around. And um, my you first can't earnings can't hold the job, apparently. <laughs> I can't hold the job. Very, that's very true. Lee, my first earnings models, you could still take a look at them, but they're on floppy disk. So I'm not sure oh how we gosh. necessarily <laughs> get access to them. Lee, do you care? Um, do you have a preference, Eastern Railroads versus Western? Uh, that's, that's, that's a great story question and what I would say is that I do like uh, Union Pacific which is the only pure play um, Western Rail uh, the, the Eastern Rails are, are Norfolk Southern CSX uh, and the reason why uh, we like Union Pacific and that's one of our focus ideas in Bloomberg Intelligence nice. is that you know we believe uh, that their new CEO uh, Jim Venna uh, can do a lot with the company he joined I believe back in uh, August uh, he was their COO left and he's really known for being a great operator at Canadian National Canadian National was one of the first railroads to em employ uh, precision scheduling railroading uh, he's also a disciple of the legendary uh, and late Hunter Harrison, who is kind of considered the godfather of uh, PSR railroading. Um, so, you know, we think he's going to come in and do a lot in terms of it really improving the operations. And not only do we like that aspect of it, but we also, you know, believe that th that company has maybe gotten a little bloated over the years. And I think there's some, you know, cost opportunities there uh, on the corporate side. And, you know, and it's not just about costs and operations. It's really about their network. They have a really fantastic network. Um, you know, they have uh, exposure to uh, cross-border freight between the U.S. and Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, you know, while um, nearshoring is not going to happen overnight, it is a long-term secular trend that we really like. Um, you know, it might be like watching uh, uh, grass grow, but or paint dry, whatever your <laughs> analogy is. But you know, uh, in terms of that growing, but it is going to grow, and and mm -hmm. and UP is really going to benefit from that. Um, 
and, and then also, you know, in addition to their uh, intermodal business, uh, Paul alluded to, they, uh, they, they truck coal out of the Powder River Basin. Uh, it's lower sulfur coal, so it's quote-unquote cleaner. Um, you know, we're not getting away from coal overnight. Uh, and and, and that, that is, you know, a, a good foundation for them, uh, not to mention some of their other businesses that they're involved in. Yeah, just don't tell the Biden administration that part. Right. But um, <laughs> So to that point, though, to politics for a second, if we get uh, a second Trump presidency, what happens to like the import export world? And like, does that affect the railroads in the same kind of way if we're looking at maybe a 10 percent tax on all imports, for example? Yeah, that, that's another great question. Uh, the reality is it just becomes a tax on the consumer, right? Because uh, if there's not an alternative for a particular product, uh, we are going to import it no matter what. Um, so yes, increased tariffs uh, do uh, are inflationary, so it's not necessarily a good thing, um, but it, it certainly complicates complicates things. And what I would say on the West Coast is the West Coast could benefit, uh, at least in the near term, from what's going on in the Panama Canal. Uh, as I'm sure oh, yeah. you, you know, there's low water levels there. Uh, I think you've heard of something going on in the Red Sea in terms of the Suez Canal. Uh, container liners are not going through the Suez, so you know they have to either go uh, along Africa. Uh, and some of that East that, that freight that was uh, destined for the East Coast might just go trans-Pacific uh, directly to the West Coast and then intermodal across the country. So, um, you know, there's some some pretty uh, interesting near-term opportunities. And there's also, you know, uh, we like to talk about labor a lot. Um, in September, there there is a contract that uh, uh, expires for the workers uh, all along the East Coast and Gulf ports. Um, yep. You know, shippers might want to divert freight to the West Coast to kind of avoid any uh, labor disputes or labor issues that might arise, yep. which would cause would gum up supply chains uh, on the, those ports. Yep, we've seen that before. All right, Lee Klaskow, great stuff as always. Lee Klaskow, senior transportation logistics analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence. He was over in Asia. Uh, last week, meeting with shippers and investors. On, uh, so is it a global, global story that he follows there? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, Alex, we're talking about the good economic data. It seems like a soft landing is certainly in the cards here. And I look at the WIRP function, the World Interest Rate Probability Function, WIRP Go on the terminal. And it's got like a 45% you know, probability of a rate cut in March. I don't really care, I don't think. <laughs> I don't care when it happens, because I know it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't really need the when. Um, 
But I, I don't. People still talking about that. I don't know. It just feels like, boy, if rates are going to be cut, I'm in, I'm in good shape. Well, yeah. But it's it's not the when now. It's the how much and how yep. long. Yep. And Absolutely. then that really matters to like the belly and the. But for end. some people that actually do this for a living, it kind of does matter. Dana Dioria, <laughs> she's one of those I believe co-CIO at uh, Nvestnet in Berwyn. PA. I'm a big fan of Berwyn, PA, uh, that whole part of the state. Uh, Dana, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, I do you care when the Fed starts cutting rates? How do you, what, how are you viewing the Fed? Because we're going to hear from the Fed next Wednesday. I think it's, well, I, I think um, given the fact that the market is pricing in at, to the point you just made, sort of it's almost 50-50 at this point. Um, you know, I, I think we are getting to the point where exactly when that cut happens uh, matters a little bit less than maybe it did. Obviously, we started the year and, and you know, end of, ended 2023 with much higher expectations of a March rate cut, which I never quite could square because we were also uh, very sanguine about the possibility of a downturn and, you know, that you saw more and more the priced in this notion of a soft landing. So, you know, the Fed, I mean, they... they on the one hand, you know, you've got this massive debt we're carrying and there's they're not oblivious to that. So cutting rates, you know, is helpful mm -hmm. there. But um, looking past that and just, you know, their mandate, unemployment and inflation, unemployment does not suggest that they need to be cutting rates right now. Right. You know, so I, I'm not one who thinks the Fed is oblivious to what's going on in markets or that, you know, they're they're just but but at this point they have they really have breathing room here. Um, so, and so, you know, so Dana, I think it could go away, but I, I don't think they have to. Go ahead, yes. So, Dana, I, I wonder maybe whether they cut in March matters to certain parts of the market. Clearly the front end, right? Maybe a, like three-year notes. Does it matter to the stock market? I'm just trying to understand what's trading on what. So, like, what's going to be trading to uh, uh, next Wednesday at, you know, 2.15 p.m.? <laughs> I do, I do think it matters. I mean, there's just, you know, fundamentally, right? There's the whole, um, if you have longer dated cash flows and, you know, so growthier stocks, for example, should should um, tend to react negatively to higher rates because you are discounting back these longer dated cash flows um, at a higher rate. And so if I'm doing just a basic intrinsic value calculation, it should matter a lot to me if I have longer dated cash flows, if I have a lot of that value of my company is in the terminal value, that these rates that are higher for longer should negatively impact. Of course, that's one input, right, in a million inputs. And then, you know, additionally, if we look at value stocks, for example, low price stocks, um, you know, they're, they're shorter duration in nature. So maybe it shouldn't impact them as much, but they also compete with bonds for, you know, di for, they tend to be dividend yielders and, um, you know, they compete with bonds. So, um, you know, higher rates impacts there. But I think this is one of many things going on. I think, you know, growth stocks, you, you talked about tech, or you're, you've been talking about tech communications, et cetera. Um, and and just where those those companies stand in terms of like the defensive posture, um, the fact that they are uh, looking at higher income and and that they are revising up, whereas other companies are not. So it's one input in many. All right, Dan, you mentioned um, fixed income here. How do you feel about um, the bond market here? It was just brutally crushed in 2022. Got some positive performance in 23, thanks to the last couple of months of the year. Kind of soft so far this year. How do you think about your allocation to fixed income? Yeah, I just I think the starting point is so different, and we tend to be talking about it the same way 
as when we were starting at rates being rock bottom. And it's not the same, right? I mean, it's very, it's a very different starting point, no matter how you cut it. Um, even, even, you know, the, the route we kind of saw last year a little bit, we short lived and to your point, you got the money back. Um, if you're looking moment to moment at the correlation between stocks and bonds, then you're nervous about patient to a certain extent because you're not seeing this hedging effect that maybe you're looking for. But if you just open the aperture a little bit in terms of the length of time you have, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in still having a robust bond allocation, particularly now, because again, I mean, there's only so far rates can go one way or the other at this point. It's not like it was, you know, starting again from a, a rock bottom and, you know, massive increases that you have to stomach. So, so I see that allocation as being necessary, as being good ballast for uh, a portfolio and not, there's not the danger there that there was. Do you like tech? Do you like tech? <laughs> I love the question. You can't not like tech. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a person who says tilt a little because you're getting so much tech, whether you're in an index or you're, you know, even actively managed, they can't get that far away. It's too big. It's too much a part of the index. So I am a person who will say tilt a little bit towards, you know, companies, lower priced companies, just to offset some of that, you know, concentration risk. But you can't get away from tech. You, you, you need it and you can't be too far on the tracking error. So, Dana, we're kind of just getting to the teeth here of earnings. Um, I haven't seen the, the actual numbers per se, but it just feels kind of meh to me. Some companies are doing OK, some companies not. Um, what are you looking for uh, this earnings season? I, no, I think you're right. That, that's the exact right word that I, um, you know, it's I, and I don't think that's a super big surprise. Right. Because even if we stick the landing there to some extent, you know, we, we should expect corporate America to have some impact from the fact that you've had this massive increase in interest rates that they have to contend with inflationary increases. A lot of these things can be lagged in terms of their effects. So, I, I mean, we can't expect to, you know, hit the lights out every single time. And, you know, even if the market is kind of absorbing this and even if the, we're seeing that, wow, inflation actually is coming in. I mean, have had another good print, you know, in terms of just um, where we want to be, we're 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 moving our way to the two percent. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost too good to be true to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, Corporations, it, it's a varied landscape. They're all dealing with um, different uh, parts of that inflationary yeah. increase, parts of you know, what it means to go back to bond markets. So I'm not surprised. I think the 2024 forecasts matter a lot. You know, what do we expect by the end of this year? Yeah. And that'll tell you something about whether we're trending toward recession after all. All right. Dana, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Dana Dioria, uh, co-CIO of InvestNet, uh, joining us. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. It's time to take a look at some earnings and some earnings for the regional banks because around this time last year, there were some issues. And around that time last year, we met this guy named Herman Chan. 
and we haven't been able to get rid of him since. Herman Chan is the regional banks analyst on Wall Street. He works for us at Bloomberg Intelligence, and boy, do we depend upon him over the last years. We're trying to really get a handle on what's happening with the regional banks in this country and, and un, what types of pressure are they under. Herman, thanks so much for joining us once again here in studio. We, we're back into earnings season for some of these banks. Tell us what you're seeing and maybe what you're hearing from investors in these regional banks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, regional banks have largely completed fourth quarter earnings at this point. Uh, I'd say it's more the same. Uh, revenues are still off about 2% on average. Uh, loan growth's not really there because there's lots of uh, weaker demand, especially from commercial borrowers and banks aren't really doing a lot of commercial real estate lending at this point, given all, a lot of potential risk ahead uh, for that particular asset class. Um, and so banks are, are focused on you know, button down expenses and, and building capital. So there's not a lot of mm-hmm. uh, good news, at least in fourth quarter results, but banks are expecting a return of loan growth later in 2024. And that's really a function of lower interest rates, um, increasing demand. How are their deposits doing? Deposits are pretty stable. Because uh, that feels like a big bright spot. That that has been uh, an area of concern, particularly after the fi- regional bank failures of SVB, First Republic, and Signature Bank. But at this point, uh, um, banks have, have lifted interest uh, costs and made deposit pricing more enticing for you know, depositors across the board in money markets and CDs. So that's really the area of growth uh, for the regional banks. But they're still seeing attrition in those, you know, zero cost deposits, the deposits that are in checking accounts that aren't generating any sort of interest for 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 customers. So one of the tickers I learned a year ago from Herman was KRE. That's the Spider S&P Regional Banking ETF, a great proxy for regional banking in the U.S. Year to date, that's flat. Right. Uh, trailing 12 months down about 10, 11 percent. So the qu- question I always have for you is, I work for a hedge fund. Right. I want to go into my hedge fund manager. I'm a hotshot right. young analyst covered in regional banks. Mm. I want to go in and say, give me another 50, another 100 million dollars, because mm. I think it's time right. to go long regional banks. Right. Are we there yet? If you went long at the end of October, that was like uh, the, that, that was, was the, the time, trade. right? Okay. That was the time. That was like sort of the... Uh, the inflection point, the, the, the banks were at you know, the trough valuation levels, and then the market sort of turned around and expected robust interest rate cuts. And so the, the, the valuations of the banks have started reflecting those rate cuts, and the market's a bit more uh, optimistic uh, for regional banks, largely because when rate cuts happen, you have lower funding costs and sort of uh, potential growth in the balance sheet, as I mentioned earlier. So that could help uh, improve It's a 35% move off that October low. That's right. So okay. that, that was the time to get in at this point. A lot Where of the, the easy money. You should have brought me in, <laughs> yes. in October. I would have talked about it. No one wants to talk about it when they're doing well. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, so Herman, another issue was that was holding maturity bonds, mm-hmm. right? And the right. disconnect between right. deposit it and the short versus long-term uh, maturities. Mm-hmm. What are they doing to fix that? I mean, do right. they need to? Are they offloading loans to, say, other big banks? What are they doing? Yeah, so there's a few dynamics going on. One is that 
with the longer term rates coming down, those unrealized losses are actually improving. So you, you've seen book value growth because of the lower you know, paper losses across the board for the industry in, in the fourth quarter. A few of the banks are, have recently started selling these loans at a loss and then reinvesting at higher prevailing rates. So you, you take the upfront hit, but then you improve your net interest margin and your earnings power going forward by reinvesting at current yields. So that's a strategy that's happening. Um, maybe that, that happens a little bit less with you know, interest rates potentially coming down going forward. So other than that spate of a handful of banks roughly a year ago, mm-hmm. have we had any other notable bank, I don't know, not failures, angst, but angst, just angst, angst. Yeah. Yeah, the angst is, was really relegated to those three. There were a couple of banks like PacWest that was in the headlines and that found a buyer in Bank of California. Another bank that, that was definitely in the headlines was a bank, as you recall, Western Alliance, um, mm-hmm. that uh, they have been, done a tremendous job of shoring up their deposits and really getting back to the good graces of the market. So there, there's no real you know, uh, concerns there. And they actually reported yesterday after the close and then stocks up 2%. So favorable results in the fourth quarter. So at this point in, in at the stage, it seems like the rest of the regional banks seem in pretty good standing. All right, let's talk about one of my favorite topics, Basel III Endgame. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Mostly because it just reminds me of The Avengers, and I love that movie. <laughs> but, um, okay, so this is basically higher capital requirements uh, for certain banks. Um, right. And if you're the big, big guys, you got to put in a certain amount. And mm. if you're sort of the medium players, you got to put in a certain amount. What's right. going to be the hit to the, the, let's call it $100 billion to $250 billion regional banks? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, you hear of the bank CEOs like Jamie Dimon be very vocal about it being, uh, the Basel III endgame being very negative for the U.S. economy and hurtful in areas like mortgage lending, et cetera. So, but for the regionals, it's fairly you know digestible the big hit for the regionals is that they uh, their capital ratios will suffer from these unrealized paper losses that you asked about earlier so that that will be incorporated into their capital calculations whereas that aspect is already in the big banks capital so some of the tailoring issues that happened during the trump administration will go away and be detrimental for regional banks but outside of that the the issues that the big banks complain about it's more manageable for the regionals and for the the management teams for the regions have talked about you know risk-weighted assets growing you know in the low single digits to the mid single digits so that's much more um, digestible relative to a 40% growth in RWAs that JP Morgan has talked about. So you you mentioned during the, again, a year ago when we were really, people were really concerned about this group, it's really going to be an earnings right. issue as opposed to a kind of a balance sheet issue. Where right. are we in kind of getting through that earnings pressure, if you will, and maybe getting back to more normalized earnings power for these companies? Yeah, that's right. Um, there's still pressure on the margin because the, even though short-term rates, the Fed stopped uh, raising rates at this point. There is still a trickle-down effect where, as I mentioned before, there is a mix shift happening from you know, your 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 demand deposits, your your checking accounts, and moving into areas like CDs. So that, that deposit remixing is a negative for 
earnings and revenues, um, but that's petering out. Um, offsetting that is fixed rate uh, repricing of their of loans and securities. So that's beneficial. So overall, revenues are going to stabilize and are starting to stabilize. That's happening. Uh, potentially, that's going to be a second half event. So you're going to still see you know, some headwinds, but mm-hmm. manageable with the second half potentially growing from better margins and balance sheet growth. Herman, so great, so smart, best stuff out there. We're sorry we only have you on when there's a disaster for the banks. Herman Chan, Bloomberg Intelligence, Senior U.S. Regional Banks Analyst. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Eric Kozaski joins us, Senior U.S. Municipal Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joins us here from the Bloomberg Intelligence HQ in Princeton, New Jersey. It used to be New York, which we fought so hard for, but now they've retreated to Princeton. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here. Yeah. What's going on in municipal bond market here these days? What are the headlines? Uh, you know what? We're just enjoying the start to this new year and, and trying to noodle on the different headlines that we've been uh, sort of thrown our way. Right. So we had some some you know speculation that there were some credit issues with Harvard. I think we've sort of safely put that to rest at this point, that they're going to be around for probably another several hundred years. Um, and obviously, we're getting a lot of questions on what's going on in the southern border and how that would impact the states. You know, um, you know, obviously, we're not of the opinion that there's going to be a secession issue on the behalf of Texas, <laughs> but it does bring up a larger conversation. You know, what could happen uh, when you have states sort of, you know, going with battle to the federal government when there's so much at play as far as tax revenues going in each direction. I love Eric because he can have energy and excitement about munis. <laughs> sure. Un- unrivaled uh, in my 17-year career covering stuff uh, in the markets. Um, right. Eric, can we go to the fun topic of the election? Because it also kind of ties yeah. into the border issue. And I'm just yep. wondering, how are we sort of prepping? How's the muni market thinking about a possible President Trump again? You know what? I don't think it would be the worst thing for the muni market in the fact that we already sort of know what we're going to get, right? So Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came into play 2017. We're still dealing with that. A lot of the provisions are set to sunset in 2025. So if the fact that we do have another dose of President Trump coming in, um, we can expect a lot of those provisions to you know, become permanent and stay in place. Not great for the muni market in the sense that corporate tax rates will stay low. And that really does tamper demand from some of those buyers who used to really play in our market. Hey, Eric, uh, talking to you and reading your research, uh, you know, I learned about taxable municipal bonds. I didn't know that was a thing until. Wait, really? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to us about that market. How's that performing here? Yeah, on a performance basis, you know, slightly outperforming corporates. But I think the real thing to focus on when you're looking at taxable munis is the different credit aspect, right? So 
totally asymmetric credit risk bucket to corporates and the fact that you're picking up another like 20, 30 basis points of yield right now. So if we think the Fed's going to cut, you know, now's the time to sort of jump into bonds because of a scarcity issue. I want to be grabbing more yield in a safer area to play and taxable immunities would check off a bunch of those boxes. Um, what do you think the tax code will be that will may or may not impact munis, though? I thought the whole point, wouldn't they tax-free? Yeah. Isn't that the whole point? Well, sure, they are tax-free, right? But I think what we're expecting, regardless if it's a Republican or Democrat that come into the White House, is that individual tax rates are most likely going to go higher. With the amount of federal deficits that they're contending with, it really only makes sense that that's the path that we're going to head on. And at the end of the day, if taxes go higher, it's going to make municipal bonds a lot more desirable as sort of the last bastion of sort of, you know, seeking a tax exemption for individuals. You mentioned higher education here, uh, and you have a note out, munis might have 99 problems, but mm. Ivy League schools aren't one of them. Talk to us about that part of the market, that yeah. issuance category. Do, higher education, how often do they use the muni market and are they good investments? Yeah, so you know, it, it really is sort of a bifurcated world when it comes to higher education. And it was one of the areas that we had a little bit of concern going into the year, but it's a story of have and have nots, right? So you have the AAA credits of the world, the Harvards, the Yales, uh, who have you tens of billions of dollars in endowments, and then you have schools like you know Penn State, who are hey, not five hundred one c three. No, I'm I'm a state school guy myself, except it was Pitt. Um, <laughs> I wrote a know, lot but, of tuition checks to Penn State. <laughs> there you go. Um, so you know, look, I mean, the, the credit profile of those two different schools is very very different. Um, we think their concern is really the less funded private education four year institutions, uh, who really can't withstand, um, you know, sort of a drop in enrollment year after year after year. That's mm -hmm. where we're going to see some spread widening. Spread widening. I like that you took us there because what we've seen in the investment grade market, for example, is just compression, compression, compression in the, in the spread. Like no matter yeah. what, there's been that compression. Um, yeah. Why are we seeing munis widening? Like what's going on there? Walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a race to quality this year, mm -hmm. and that's why we're seeing, you know, much of the grab uh, grabbiness going on is going to be in the double A AA and triple A names that are coming to market. Um, you know, Washington Geo was a, was an issue that just came did very well, um, both in the primary and secondary. But I think what's happening in our market and sort of echo with corporates is that, you know, you are seeing an overall tightening of spreads just due to supply and demand imbalance. And it's really been a theme for munis, I would say, dating back to 2017 at this point. Eric, I'm thinking about my buddies on the new, new issuance market. How's the yep. new issuance market look for 2024? How's the calendar look? I mean, pretty full, um, and, and surprisingly so. I think a lot of the estimates for supply coming into this year across the board were it was going to be on the quieter side, but I've been surprised by the amount of you know preliminary new issue filings that have come out, and pretty sizable deals as well, right? We have uh, some stuff in the high yield space, another bright line train issue coming, you know, bridging the gap between California and Vegas, so that's going to be interesting oh. to watch. Yeah, and the Massachusetts that. Children's Hospital deal, um, you know, a subsector of healthcare that we always find interesting. So definitely something for everyone on the calendar. Um, what happens if the Fed cuts rates? More issuance? Like, what, what's the knock-on effect? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, our market can't do advanced refunding. So it's not like if I have a mortgage and rates drop, I can refi anything, mm -hmm. right? So on that aspect, you know, we're not going to see a lot. But I do think to some degree that there's market timing going on in our space. And a lot of people didn't like the market last year. So if we have, you know, three, four rate cuts, um, you know, yeah, you could definitely see some more stuff pop on the calendar. So what's the credit quality like out there in municipal bond land? I haven't heard of any big blowups recently. 
And you probably won't, right? At least from the credit raters' perspective, um, you know they continue to sort of march higher uh, as far as positive outlooks on the credits that we long have held to sort of be the bad boys of the municipal space, right? The Illinois and Chicago's of the world. Um, so as long as sort of the opinion over the next several fiscal periods is that they're going to continue to pay their bonds, I think all is going to be well when it comes to credit quality in our space. Here's a question that that may tie into politics also. So clearly, the Inflation Reduction Act is trying to be a catalyst for investment. And you're seeing a lot of red states get a lot of that investment, whether it's even with the CHIPS Act or it's building a new facility or a battery storage, et cetera. And I'm just wondering, with Republicans talking a lot about wanting to repeal that, whether or not it actually happens, what would like a South Carolina do um, if all of a sudden they lost all this investment helped by the, 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 the IRA and the CHIPS Act? Yeah, I mean, well, to the speaking to the fact that they haven't done a lot of issuance, even with those matching funds available to this point, uh, speaks to the fact of that market timing we just mentioned. But if they had to go at it alone, I think they'd find a very receptive municipal market uh, who'd be happy to finance them at very competitive rates. So, you know, the the availability of mm-hmm. money to finance the amount of things that actually need to get financed in our space, there's no shortage of that. Wow. So, Amazing. what are the sectors? you like here i mean is that how, do investors in your world that they look at sectors like i want to be in in healthcare or i want to be in mm-hmm. transportation how does that typically work yeah, I mean, look, a lot of the products in our area, um, they're, they're trying to be uh, an index, right? And it's sort of broad based. But yeah, there are definitely investment vehicles that are focused on sectors. Some of the sectors that we think are, are going to be more interesting this year are, are healthcare, right? Um, shaking off some of that pandemic pain they've been dealing with the past several periods, right? And hopefully what we think is going to happen is a little bit of spread tightening based on some you know more normal margins coming back to the space. All right, very good. Uh, Eric Kazaski joins us, Senior U.S. Municipals Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Brian Egger, he is our senior gaming analyst. He covers all those casinos, all the hotels, the cruise lines, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, He's been doing it for decades on Wall Street. we got a Super Bowl coming up. Mm. Super Bowl's in Vegas. That's got to be good for Vegas. Brian, how big? Yeah, it's big. I mean, it's the first time Vegas is a who's city. You know, I think if you look at other analogous types of big events, the Formula One Grand Prix back in November, what we saw for that event, November 23 versus 22, is you had table game revenue shot up, room rates shot up, you know, slot revenue was a little weaker, but all the high-end business for both gaming and hotels certainly benefited. We'll see what it does to the bottom line in terms mm-hmm. of how many rooms they gave away. We'll get a better sense of that during earnings season, but certainly from a top line perspective, um, you know, these big events are really powerful and the Super Bowl in Vegas, we'll, we, we expect the same. So Brian, um, we keep getting really solid economic data. The consumer is definitely spending. Are they still spending on experiences and stuff? And is that helping gambling in casinos? 
They are. They're definitely spending on experiences. Vegas is a big beneficiary of that, both on the gaming side and the hotel side, and you know the convention business being back as well. Um, right. Vegas is yes, certainly yes, up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Vegas is up very significantly versus 2019, but it is up also year over year. The comps get tougher, uh, but it's definitely benefiting. I mean, so Vegas, one of my favorite towns of all time. Um, is it really? Oh, yeah. Three nights, it is my favorite place in the world. Fourth night, I'm like, I'm done. Um, so, I mean, the convention business, that's how I, most people get introduced to Vegas here, this convention business. Um, so I know that's such a big part, and I know that's, that's back. Is Vegas at the point where it always seems like they can't possibly think about building another big resort, yet they do? Yes. And they sell the rooms, and they get the rates. It's just amazing. Where are we in kind of the development of Vegas. So the big recent opening was the Fontainebleau Open in uh, mm. December 13th. So that that's a recent opening. And where is that? Um, that's also the north part of the Las Vegas Strip. Okay. The old, uh, yeah. So it's it's you know and also we had uh, back in uh, two years earlier, uh, you know we had another major opening with uh, Genting's Resorts World. Right. So we are seeing some development in percentage growth terms. Each of those openings is maybe a two percent increase in room supply. Yep. So it's nothing like back in the '90s when you had oh, yeah. several openings in a Boom. quarter. But nevertheless, it is kind of filling out some of the And that's when he was at DLJ killing it on mm. the street, doing all kinds of yeah, So it was the opening uh, parties deals. for the, the Luxor in 1993. Okay, so yeah. speaking of the I opening parties, Jody Laurie, who covers cruise lines and stuff, yes. went on, what was it again? Yeah. Icon, the, of the the seas. Seas. Icon of the Seas. Icon of the Seas, right? And when, so, so the talk about like here, something's opening, come join us. And she was saying the whole point of these cruise lines is they want to be Vegas on the seas. I mean, I'm yes. extrapolating. But is the cruise line industry eating away at Vegas? Yeah, so they all, first of all, I have to say, you know, Jody went on a cruise and all he got is this lousy t-shirt. Yes. You know, that's like, <laughs> we didn't even I get did not t-shirt. go on that cruise, right? I didn't get a t-shirt actually. But I mean, to, to, to the point, yes, I mean, they're all competing for the same discretionary dollar. Cruise lines are doing well. Vegas is doing well. In essence, they compete for a similar customer. The penetration expansion is a lot lower for cruise lines, uh, but they're all benefiting, and we've yet to see the consumer roll over. Comps do get tougher, mm-hmm. but uh, you know the, the appetite for experiences and leisure travel uh, remains very strong. Talk to us about the sports betting business. There's a, it's legalized in so many states now. Yeah. It's gotten so big, and it's you know, listen to sports radio. It's every single ad. Yeah. It's on television and all the big sporting events. It's just exploding. Talk to us about that business as a business of itself and then maybe is that impacting kind of the sports books at some of these casinos yeah i think first of all in terms of the business you know vermont just started up mobile sports betting this month you had north carolina recently we're filling in all the states there's more and more of it the big challenge has been gaining profitability so what they are doing is targeting promotions more effectively they're reaching now the point of actual profitability Hmm. a much better point than they were a year ago companies like DraftKings. I don't really think it, it competes directly against brick and mortar sports books. Maybe it does to some degree, but in markets where you do have both mobile and brick and mortar, mobile gets to such a bigger part of the pie. Um, can I just share my story about gambling? Sure. So I went to the Bahamas with yeah. my husband and we were at an ultimate Texas Hold'em table. A 21 <laughs> year old got quad queens. Wow. And it was amazing. I know that's not sports betting, but that's, <laughs> that's like the that moment cool. you live for. Like that's so cool. Like Especially he cried and called his there. mom. It was so <laughs> great. Um, so, but for sports betting, how hard is it to understand? Like, okay, it's legal here. It's not legal here. Like, does that get into difficulty when yeah, you're, they're true reporting the their numbers? It's general. You're right that uh, gaming is legalized and regulated on a state by state basis. It's true of casinos. It's true of sports books. Uh, you know, now we're seeing. 
uh, online sports books, online sports betting legal in north of 25 states, right? So it's it's really a significant something like 45% of the U.S. population has access to an online sports book. There are some states where it's not there yet, but since the Supreme Court blockade against this was lifted a few years back in uh, 2018, we're really significantly expanded the industry. So it is maybe some confusion, but um, it, it, more and more it's becoming ubiquitous. Yeah, I'm looking at the FA function for DraftKings. They're not even, they're going to be, I guess, finally turn EBITDA positive yeah. this year for the yeah. first time. So these guys aren't even making any net income. It took a while. And what happens is you introduce a sports book, takes a couple of years to reach maturation. You, you eventually build an audience and you can take the promotions and giveaways down. And that's what they've done. So in states that are huh. really mature, like New Jersey, been around five years, they're much more profitable than a newer state. But overall, you know, look in the UK and Europe, you've got, Online gaming is more profitable, but it's a much more mature business. Yep. Mm. Interesting. It's so interesting. I know. So, I mean, how about that? You also do some work on the, on the regional casino companies yeah. that aren't in Vegas. How's that business doing? You know, they're they're doing well. I mean, it's still up think here. think riverboat casinos. Yeah, right. about, yep. not really, but usually not on riverboats anymore. <laughs> but they're still. Paul, we're Jersey guys. Still you have to ask adjacent, about Atlantic right? City. You know, oh, near it's the so water. Boring. So depressing. <laughs> no, I, I didn't finally see that depressing last really? time I went. Okay. Yeah, I went to see Amy well, Poehler and Tina Fey. It was really fun. I saw Sinatra down there eight times during high school and college. Go ahead. Okay, that's Re okay. Really? Yes. yes. It's easy. We drive down. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it's a whole other yeah. conversation. Yeah, we're from the same era, so I'm yeah. sure I did too back then. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the regional game business is doing well. It's still up well over the pre-pandemic. It's up year over year. I think the comps do get tougher. You know, I mean, just because we've seen so much growth, yep, particularly, yep. so you know, comps are a little tougher, but it's still it's still doing well. I think the margin story gets tougher. Ten seconds on labor, AC. Yeah, you know. how's AC doing? Ten AC seconds. AC is doing okay. I mean, it's like other regional markets. It's yep. it's it's up year over year. You know, the big challenge for all these regionals, I'll throw AC in there as well, is is costs, competition. Yeah. You know, all right. Labor You're okay, costs. John. I got a little AC talk in there for you. It's not Vegas. I, I don't. The people <laughs> there just aren't as friendly as the people no. in Vegas. No, they're just you know the pit bosses, the dealers, they yell at you and stuff. But I have a good time when I go down there, so it's all good. Brian Negger covers all the gaming stuff. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.